All right. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, welcome to Recovery Jam. Um, we're glad that everybody here has joined us today. Um, and we are going to talk about step four. And I was a little bit indecided about whether I was going to use the AA 12 and 12 or just the big book or I'm probably going to touch in a little bit of the 12 and 12, but mostly stay on the pages of the big book. Um, so step four, it made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And on page 64, it says, um, though our decision was a vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect. Remember the decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. That's what we're talking about. And then it's going to have little permanent effect unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. Our liquor was but a symptom. So we had to get down to causes and conditions. And so like, what do they mean, right? When they say food is a symptom, because I thought that's what my problem was, that I had a problem with food. But um, we actually come to find out that my compulsive eating, that our compulsive eating or other people's addictive drinking or drug use or whatever it is, is a symptom of a much greater illness. And um, otherwise, our entire program would just be abstinence. It would be, okay, abstinence, and that's your program. But that's not the case with us. So what is the greater illness, right? What is it? Um, it's the things inside me, not outside me, that causes the causes and the conditions that keep me needing to soothe with food. And we call that the spiritual malady. That's what the big problem is. And spiritual malady is defined as like, you know, feeling like something is missing inside you, feeling like you're half alive, that there's like a hole. Oftentimes, you know, when we speak to other compulsive overeaters and addicts, they'll say that they remembered at a very young age, not feeling whole, feeling almost empty and incomplete. And that's the spiritual malady that this is talking about. So that's the real condition. Um, and that condition always had me looking to fill that vacuum, that hole with food, with something that would make me feel complete, comfortable. In the AA 12 and 12, um, it says on the bottom of page 49, that once we have a complete willingness to take inventory, and exert ourselves to do the job thoroughly, a wonderful light falls upon this foggy scene. So like this hole that's inside me, once I really say, okay, I'm gonna do it, I start feeling like a little bit better, right? As we, um, and this wonderful light falls upon us, this foggy scene, as we persist, a brand new confidence, a brand new kind of confidence is born and the sense of relief at finally facing ourselves is indescribable. These are the first fruits of step four. So 
just beginning, we begin to feel, many of us begin to feel uplooted, uplifted just from the thought of exerting ourselves and seeing ourselves honestly. And it actually says that the action of uncovering ourselves and facing ourselves gives us confidence and relief. Like we begin to already feel something. And yet, you know, it's crazy because so many of us, myself included, were afraid of the fourth step, like the dreaded fourth step where, you know, it, like it's a monster, like I'm gonna see something that I didn't know existed before, right? It, we know it's there, it all happened already. So there's no monster. It, it, it's already, you know, you're not discovering something that um, didn't exist. It's existed. It's always been there. And it says here, by now the newcomer has probably arrived at the following conclusions. That is character defense, representing instincts gone astray, have been the primary cause of his drinking and failure at life. So many of us have this huge sigh of relief of, oh, this is why I've always used the food. And the text makes clear that the drinking or eating did not cause the defects. It's not that I ate compulsively and that's why I have that defect. It's the other way around. The defects caused the drinking. The defects caused the eating, which is why food plans and abstinence alone will not cure us, which is why every time I put the food down in the past and I've gotten entirely abstinent without working the steps, I can't remain that way because the food is just the symptom. It's like you know, having a horrible sore throat, which is really strep throat and sucking on a lozenge and thinking, okay, why isn't it getting better? Like you're just treating a symptom. So what's blocking me is inside of me, inside of me, it's not external. And, you know, sometimes we hear people say how horrible they were when they were in the food, as if the food was the creator of the selfishness or the fearfulness or any other character defects. Like they say, oh yeah, when I was in the food, I was terrible. But actually we find that the food is what we used to suffer through the pain of going through life the way that we were. You know, food is what I use to deal with living life like me. Food was the substance I used to tolerate the pain of living, right? I used it to help me tolerate the pain of being alive. And here's the problem is that it doesn't work for long. And as the disease progresses, the amount I needed to get to zero was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? It, like, it took me more, more food to get to that place where I was just quiet inside. And we reach a point where it stops working. And even still, we can't stop. That's what it means to be powerless, right? That you can't live with it and you can't live without it. The food stops working. In the big book, page 64, it says resentment is the number. Now we're going to be in the big book. And it's 
because resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick, right? That's the spiritual malady. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically, right? So the spiritual malady is what gets fixed first before we get better mentally and physically, which I always say like much to people's, they don't really like this, but I will always hope that people get recovered, get that relationship with God, have a spiritual awakening before they lose all their weight or before they get to a healthy body weight or before their marriage improves or before any of the other things because we really are supposed to straighten out spiritually first, right? And we find, I find that oftentimes when people get better physically before they get better spiritually, they think, well, I know what I thought, that the power source must be me. I must be the power source. And when I start thinking I'm the power source, I'm in big trouble because I'm powerless. And I stop doing the things that I need to do to straighten out. And for me, food always returned, right? It always returns. So here it says, in dealing with resentments, and we're going to talk about our resentments, we set them on paper, right? We got to put it down. We listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. And we asked ourselves, why were we angry? In most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. So we were sore, we were burned up. And when we ask, you know, why we're angry, when asked, like, why are you angry? It's not so that we can assign blame. Why I'm angry is not because she did blank or he did blank or they did this, but why I'm angry is because something inside me was affected, that I was affected by something. And, you know, what I find is that um, I'm extraordinarily sensitive. That's part of being an addict is like acute sensitivity. and. You know, if we forget and we're like on this blame seeking endeavor, just remember whose inventory it is, right? It's our own inventory. So assigning blame to other people is not going to get us anywhere. All right. The first thing, page 66, it says the first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. And the usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. So the solution for people like us is to put down the rope 
right? That's always my solution. I don't have to worry about looking like a weakling or looking like I'm not up for a good fight. But the worse matters get, right? The more I fight, the worse it gets for me. So as in war, it says the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. And I think about it like this. If I insist on winning each little battle, all I'm doing is fighting, right? All I'm doing is fighting. I'm looking for opportunities to win constantly, to win constantly. Um, and it's short-lived because there's always a new, there's always a new situation that's not to my exact liking, right? Um, and we learned that in step three, right? When we were trying to run the whole show, everybody else has their script and their perspective. And I collide with them, you know, I battle with them when I insist that my way is the way that gets done. It's plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? So I'm wasting my life, right? We're squandering hours. Our time is precious. It's, it's finite. Our time here is finite. And if I waste my time fighting, instead of living, right? That's on me. But with the alcoholic, it says, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave, deadly. It will kill me. We found that it is fatal, it's fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us to drink is to die. So if you harbor feelings, it means you make it a safe spot. You keep it safe, you protect it, right? You like pull it into your little harbor. And, and if I do that with my feelings, my feelings of being right, my feelings of being hurt, my feelings of needing my own way, I am shutting myself off from God, I'm shutting God out. And what happens for someone like me with that great big gaping hole of the spiritual malady, I eat again. Cannot live in that way. And it says to drink is to die. For me to eat is to die. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men. But for alcoholics, these things are poison. All right, so that's a phrase that I turn to a lot when I'm feeling worked up about something because it reminds me that as an ex-problem drinker, I have a very unique set of directions, right? And we've talked about this before, that we're distinct entities. We're told early on that the illusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. So we're not like other people right? And so it's the dubious luxury of normal men to be mad over things, to hang on to it, to feel grouchy, to feel angry over it. 
for me, it's poison. You know, I have a very different set of directions than normal people have. I cannot defend and support my side and my position. In fact, what we're told is that we have to actually divorce ourselves from that kind of thinking. You know, and I remember thinking a long, long time ago, I thought that getting recovery meant that I was going to get my voice. Like I had this perception of myself that I was a poor little doormat, that everybody was always, you know, I was a martyr and I was the doormat and I was always doing what everybody else wanted and that I was going to get strong. I had a picture, actually, I have a sister-in-law who, who just to me was like, always, she's, she's strong. She's just a strong personality. And, and, um, and I was like, that's what I'm going to be like. I'm going to be like her. I'm going to be able to be strong and state my opinion. And, and like, no one's going to walk all over me. No one's going to push me around anymore. And um, mm, I, she's not me and I'm not her. And she's not this distinct entity. And she doesn't kill herself with food when she has to position herself to get her, her point across. She doesn't do it. She doesn't have what I have. And today, I have to seek peace and love at all costs. And it often requires more discipline than what I thought about putting my foot down was ever going to do. It actually is much more disciplined to not put your foot down, to not fight over something that probably isn't really worth, if it's not worth dying over, it's not worth fighting over, right? And it's actually requires more discipline than putting the food down. Putting the food down was far easier than putting my right to be right down, right? So I have a spiritual sickness, a disease, an uneasiness with reality as it was. People are not behaving according to my master plan. Life was not unfolding precisely the way I was certain it should be unfolding. And I was 100% right. And I couldn't let go of this. I'm like, I am absolutely right. And I've come to know I am in the greatest danger of the spiritual malady when I'm right. That gaping hole inside me gets bigger and bigger when I am hanging on to being right. Being right has not given me peace and happiness that's necessary in order to be free. So we, what do we do? We cross-examine ourselves. We look closely and critically at ourselves. And the AA, again, 12 and 12 on page 54 says, if my disturbance was seemingly caused by the behavior of others, why do I lack the ability to accept conditions I cannot change? And again, we cannot base our happiness on the actions of others. Further down the page, it says, if I am unable to change the present state of affairs, am I willing to take the measures necessary to shape my life to conditions as they are? What does that mean? You know, that, that my inventory will help me ultimately find a way to live happily and peacefully, even though life is not going according to my design. 
The inventory helps me grow to accept and to trust God's design. The inventory shows me that I might have injustices that I face, right? I'm going to look at them. I'm going to look at the injustices. I'm going to face my resentments. And that although I might be certain that I'm right and they are wrong to this, I'll tell you what I say. Great. You're right. Okay. You're right. Okay. You win. Now what? Like now what? Now let's find a way to live happily, peacefully, and productively in light of this. Quite simply, other people's values and perspectives are oftentimes none of my business. They have every right to be wrong according to me and what I believe is wrong. So how, how do we do this? <laughs> like, how, how is it that we can possibly do this? Well, we turned back to the list for it held the key to the future. We were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real. So it doesn't matter if, if it's absolutely true that they were doing wrong or if it's just the working of my imagination. It doesn't matter. Both of them have the power to kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered. But how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. Well, this was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Right? That's, that's what it is. And though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we could cheerfully grant a sick friend. And when a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God, save me from being angry. I will be done. So, you know, for me, like what we're told here, we pray for people, right? That we're supposed to pray for people. And, uh, you know, my own process is um, that I create prayers specifically for the people that I resent. Like, I don't just, I, you know, there's the great, there's the sick man's prayer. That works great. I like to take my prayers. Remember, I, you know, all of us are looking to have a relationship with God, right? That's what this whole process is about, is cultivating our own very intimate, very specific relationship with God. So means I can speak to God like I would speak to my friend, like my conscience companion. And what I do is I take these situations and I create a prayer for the person or the situation that's really getting me. Um, and one of the things that I like to do, you know, Janet had taught me about this idea that rather than say spiritually sick, like what if we said that they're spiritually um, developing or under construction, they're not finished yet. And I love the idea, especially as a teacher, to think about developing like a child. What if somebody spiritually is a toddler? Then I could certainly have a more compassionate perspective for them. And for the people that really hurt me, I really try to envision them 
like they might've been as a child. Like I try to have a little bit of compassion. What was it like for them growing up? Was there something that maybe caused them to have this way that's hurtful to me? Maybe there was something in their, in their development that you know caused them to be like that. And I really try to picture them. I've had great success doing this with a boss that really I had a very hard time with her. And no matter what I did to make her like me, you know, manipulation, it didn't work. She just didn't seem, I interpreted she didn't like me. I actually don't think she had a thought about me either way. I don't think I was so important enough that she didn't like me. I just think she didn't think about me. Um, but I would picture her as a little girl thinking what must it have taken her to come to the position where she is and to have this kind of tough exterior. And I, and so when I think about someone spiritually developing, it helps me not be angry at them because I wouldn't be angry at a child, right? We would expect like a little kid to do lots of things that might be look hurtful and look naughty, but they're children. So we cut them some slack. And that's sort of the position I try to take when I'm praying for people to have as much compassion for them, you know, um, and the way of looking at people like that invites a loving and tolerant stance, which I'm told I need to have. I need to have love and tolerance for them. Um, and so, you know, I, we've got a very specific code as recovered people, love and tolerance. Love them and ask for a thicker skin. That's what it means for me when I think about tolerance, that the idea that I'm gonna have less of an emotional response from the actions of others, like a drug, right? When you build up a tolerance to a certain medication, it means that the effects of that medication don't affect you quite as severely, right? Same thing, I'm gonna ask to have the same kind of position with those other people I ask. And who do I ask to help me with this? God, right? And so really those people, those situations actually help me form a closer relationship with God because I keep going to God with it. I keep going to God with it. Um, and when we pray for love and tolerance, we're asking God not to change the other person, but to change me so that I can face life successfully. And that's really what that third step was about, wasn't it? Ask God to help me have victory, right? So that I can face life successfully. And, you know, we avoid fighting because we cannot win. The price we pay in this imagined victory is way too high. We don't get satisfaction. We get burned up and either get flooded with for me, either I get flooded with moral superiority or overwhelmed with self-pity, feeling like I'm victimized, feeling like I've been put out. And both of which means that we are disconnected from people. Both of those positions, whether you feel superior to them or victimized by them, you certainly don't feel connected to them. Cut off and alone, what happens to us, the lone wolves, we run into the arms of the food, right? That's why it's infinitely grave for people like us to harbor those feelings. 
Now let's talk about fear, right? Because we discussed resentments. Okay, now what about fear? Well, fear, this short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. Sometimes we think fear ought to be classed with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Perhaps there's a better way. We think so. For we are now on a different basis, the basis of trusting and relying upon God. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match clearly with serenity? So we can overcome our fear as we learn to trust God. Like, I just think that's incredible that when I trust God, I actually feel less afraid. In step three, you know, that's where these steps are so tied into one another, because in step three, we decided that we had a new employer, right? And that he was going to give us what we needed, right? That we were going to work for him. He was going to give us what we needed, that if we stayed close to God and performed his work well, our needs will be met. Not our wishes, (laughs) right? Not our wishes or desires, but our needs. And, you know, and so my experience with fear was that fear was really at the end what drove me here. Because I had been in Overeaters Anonymous before. I had been, I was, I had been abstinent. I had periods of abstinence, I had periods of relapse. I was looking for something, I was struggling. I had no idea that there was something much greater wrong with me than just an allergy to food. I really thought I had a food problem. And what happened for me at the very end, it was fear that brought me back because I was having panic attacks. And these panic attacks were like, they, it was getting worse and worse and worse for me. I had never been um, afraid like the way that I was becoming afraid. I would drive to work um, and I was like shaking as I was driving and I was thinking, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to drive much longer. Like it was really, it was scaring me. Um, And what happened was the panic attacks turned out to be a gift. They really were a gift because um, it, it, it drove me to my knees. It made me surrender when I, I just, because the food stopped working. I couldn't get, remember, I couldn't get to that ground zero anymore. I couldn't fill the hole up, that panicky hole. Um, and, you know, I had this, um, when I, when I read about, you know, that, that fear is, um, like stealing. I remembered, you know, I had like, look, look, all of us come here with a lot of life experiences and um, my own life experiences. I had a lot of loss, one after another, a lot of painful losses in a short, relatively short amount of time. Um, And it terrified me because I could see that people I love could be ripped away quickly. And that, that, 
was very scary for me. Um, and I remembered thinking, what do you mean? I, I fear is like something that is like stealing. I, I, I like thought and maybe even said like, you don't understand, I'm entitled to be afraid. Like, you don't know, like what happened to me, I'm entitled to be scared. And like, the crazy thing is after I took step three and was working on, on my inventory, I heard this other voice like, and, and I wasn't, you know, for me, I guess it is like some of those God moments. But when I said like, I'm entitled to be afraid, like I heard this other voice in my head that was like, mm -mm, you're entitled to more than that. What if you're entitled to more than that? And what if you're entitled to freedom? Like, What if you could actually overcome your fear? And that, the thought like that just was more exciting. It was more tempting to chase that than it was to chase the food at that point. Like I was like, oh, I, I would do everything I can do to not be afraid like that anymore. And so how do we get free? Trust and reliance on God. Trust and reliance on God, on the divine plan. You know, we're not promised a pain-free existence. That's really what I've come to see too from all this, that we're humans. And that by our very finite existences, we are going to experience deep loss. I don't know why, but that's part of the human experience. Um, but I trust that I'll get what I need. I might not get what I want. You know, and my experience has been through those moments of deep loss. My needs have been met. People have, God has consistently placed people in my life that ushered me through the darkest moments that were there. You know, I just couldn't see it then, but it has been the truth. I was never alone. Um, you know, so then how do we trust? Dependence on God. Dependence on God allows us to trust. And um, I love this on page 68. It says, we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator. We can laugh at those who think spirituality is the way of weakness. So absolutely. Never, ever, ever apologize for relying on God, right? In fact, if I am here to show others how amazing his power is, it would be horribly dishonest of me and arrogant to pretend that he has nothing to do with it. Like I should never be embarrassed to say exactly where this recovery, where this ability to overcome my fear has come from. You know, it says here, paradoxically, it is the way of strength. Reliance on God is the way of strength. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. I love that. I just think that's like probably one of the most beautiful things in the book. And I think it's, you know, it's what we can answer when questioned about, do you need to believe? Like, do you need to believe in God? Well, if you have what I have, 
what's your choice to be, right? There is no other choice. Yes, my choice is, you know, because I need that, right? Otherwise, I'm going to walk around with a big gaping hole of fear and it will kill me. So yes, I absolutely do need it in order to get well. And it is the way of strength. All men of faith have courage. We trust our God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. And at once we commence to outgrow fear. So when I read that, I think, you know, I don't have to be afraid of making a mistake. I can make a mistake. Because God is far more powerful than my small mistakes. I can let go of regret. You know, I like to think that God can work around my errors. That if I make a mistake, God is certainly powerful enough. You know, today I was talking to someone and we were talking about that idea. And she was saying, I wished I would have done blank, blank, blank. I think I could have prevented whatever. And um, and the conversation wound up saying, well, don't you think that's God's job? And if, and if a mistake was made, perhaps that was not the original plan. You know, if you've got like a GPS, and this was not my idea, I heard someone else share this once, but this idea that, you know, if you make a wrong turn and you're using your GPS, it says recalculating, recalculating. It like change, right? If my GPS is, is strong enough and smart enough, incapable of redirecting me when I make a mistake, I would certainly like to think that my creator could absolutely use my mistakes for the benefit for his master plan to come to fruition. Then if I live that way, then I'm not afraid anymore. I don't have to be afraid because I trust my God, right? I no longer, I commence to outgrow the fear. Um, and if I have regret, for the choices I make. Well, thank you, God, for these 12 steps because I have step nine. You know, I've got step nine and then later, you know, step 10 to help me remedy them when I make a mistake. I love the idea of letting God use me to show what he can do. I think that's just incredible that my employer uses me to show others what he can do. It's a beautiful, that's a beautiful relationship that we get to that we get to have with God, um, which I think is why it's very important that when we share our stories, we're clear who the real heroes, is, right? That it's not, I am not the power source, right? If I think for a moment that I am the power source, I'm in big trouble. I'm gonna be in great big trouble um, because this disease is progressive. And in order for me to keep up with this disease, my spiritual connection, must progress as well. Page 68 through 69. All right, real quick now about Seth. When I'm like, real quick. Many of us needed an overhauling there, but above all, we tried to be sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. And what does it say? We wanna stay out of this controversy. Like, I don't want to get involved in extreme thoughts about whether it's sex, 
whether it's about how to work this program, whether it's about people's politics, people's religions. I want to stay out of controversy. That's what we're actually told to do, right? In this program, we're not supposed to seek controversial subjects. Further down, it says, we ask God to mold our ideals and help us live up to them. And I, you know, um, one of the things I noticed about when my <clears throat> ideals are being molded, right? It's oftentimes comes with a little pressure. <laughs> if you think about the molding of something, it's like, I, you know, that idea of where it's clay in the potter's hand. And when I'm being molded, there's usually a piece of me that might be pushing against it, but I allow God to mold me, right? I allow, I'm aware that it might be uncomfortable, but I allow myself to be molded. I allow myself to live in agreement with his ideals because God just doesn't make the ideals clear to me. He actually helps me live up to them, right? He doesn't just tell me what it is I need to do. He gives me the strength to follow through, to do it. And when I don't have the strength, he gives me people to help me, to walk beside me. Page 70 says, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. <clears throat> We're told throughout that we treat sex like any other problem. And what do we do? We think of their needs and work for them. And this takes us out of ourselves. I find it very comforting that our solution is the same in all of our problems, right? Whether it's sex, whether it's a resentment at work, like no matter what my problems are, whether it's fear, what do I do? We seek God's direction and we help others, right? And with that, I will pass.